Colossians chapter 2. It's a joy to be able to open the word with you this morning. This is a a very meaty passage and something that we often talk about, the gospel. It's very clearly articulated here in the scriptures. Um, And so just joy to speak on it. I don't have that many notes because you can just give the gospel here and it's very clear in its entirety. But there are some, um, some very neat pictures, word pictures here, and physical pictures of the gospel. We can see what God has done. My, my goal this morning is really to work backwards. We're going to start almost in uh, 15, 14 and 15, and we're going to work backwards into verse 11 after I would open with some thoughts on what it means to be in Christ. Um, but we can see what God has done for us, outside of us, which we see in uh, verse 13 and 14 and 15, and then what Christ has done for us, and we see that in some pictures in verse 11 and verse 12. If you're in Colossians, look at verse 10, or verse 9, we'll begin with a sentence there. Verse 9, verse through 11. Let's first understand what it means and the blessings that come with being in Christ. And then we'll, we'll look at how we get to be within Christ by going through 15 and backwards into 11. Verse 9 of Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Who is him? It's Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of, of God, Christ was fully God and fully man, dwells bodily. And you, meaning us, have been filled, uh, another word would be completed, whole, without needing anything else, in Christ, who is the head, he is over, he is supreme of all rule and authority. And then verse 11 starts with the two words, in him. If you're in Christ... You are a new creature. And that doesn't mean that you have sort of uh, been polished up on the inside. Or that Christ has come and sort of tidied the home a little bit of your heart. No, that means that when you come to Christ in saving faith, you are literally a new creature. You have been, as said in other parts of Scripture, born again. Not just polished up, but literally new, completely new. Now you're in an old package, and in the package ages by day, but the inward part is completely new. And it's, it's not lacking like the outside package is. You don't have a limp here or a blemish there. It's complete and whole and new. If it's anything less than that, or not complete in Christ, and we have to go find outside of Christ something that will fill us up and allow us to be uh, able to be presented on that final day before God as His. So we are a new creature. Death has been exchanged for life. All the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We've not accomplished anything of this upon our own. 
He's not, we've not even accomplished it. Uh, Christ has not even accomplished it with any of our help. It is something that he has done. If you are taking notes, I'm going to read off a, a bunch of scriptures here. And I would just encourage you to write the reference down. And then go back in, in either family worship or your own private time with the Lord and read them through. But I just want to read off a small smattering here of the benefits of being in Christ. Of becoming that new creature by the work he has done within you. How about John 1.4? In him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. You walked in darkness and sin, now you have light. And it's, it's, that, that's, a, that's a picture that is so beautiful, but it's so forward to us. We're just used to going over to the wall and flipping on the switch, and we have all the light we desire. But if you were to go to Haiti or another third world country, where the light that you have is literally dictated by the sun, and you might have 30 minutes before or after the sun that you have light because the generator kicks on, and you're wanting to read the Bible, and you hear a hum down the hill, and that hum shuts off, the town generator goes silent, you're without light. And you can't choose any more than you would desire to flip on a switch. It's not going to happen. In sin, no matter how much we desire it, we do not have light. It's black. And yet now we have light. And we can see. And you can go to Scripture and understand. The life was the light of men. You were dead. Now you have life in Christ. John four fourteen. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into the everlasting life. This picture in John 4 is the woman at the well. Here's this woman who comes and she's trying to draw physical water. Christ sees her spiritual need that she's in need of of spiritual water. She's trying to draw physical water. She's in need of spiritual water. Christ, something that will completely satisfy And he provides, and the same for us. We daily have the opportunity, because we've been given this gracious gift of Christ, to need nothing else. There's nothing else that can satisfy. The old package certainly would desire to put on something else or to gain something else that would satisfy. But in Christ, we have complete satisfaction. John 6, 56. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Speaking of the spiritual analogy here that's shown in communion. Christ dwells in us. And as we see in Colossians 2 here, it's all of God, the fullness of deity. Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said... For we are also his offspring. We have the ability. Because we have now been adopted as sons. We are his offspring of Christ. We have the opportunity to live and move and have our being. To experience life as it's designed to be. In full communion with the Father. Outside of Christ we do not have that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us. God has made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, who was perfect, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a benefit to have the righteousness of Christ exchanged for our sin. 
Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Not only do you have Christ's righteousness, you have faith, and that's a gift. That's not something you chose to have. Your eyes were opened and you were given the amount of grace needed to have faith in him. Colossians 2, verse 7, as Paul spoke on last week. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. There's multiple things in this passage. Your foundation, as we sung about in first light, is solid, the solid rock. And not only is it deep and solid, it is fertile and you can grow in it. Think of that picture. If you were to go to a construction site and you clear some land and you get a nice hard-packed ground, things don't, if you lay concrete, things don't grow in concrete. They can grow through concrete, but they don't grow in concrete. And yet in Christ, we have an extremely firm, deep, deep, deep foundation, unmovable, unshakenable, and yet we can grow in that. Because we have the water of life, we have the ability to, to bear fruit for Christ. Colossians 2.10 And ye are complete, or as you are whole in him, which is the head of all principality and power. We're complete in Christ. There's nothing lacking. Hebrews 10.38 Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Because of Christ giving us grace, we have the blessing of the pleasure of God. He is pleased with us. Is he pleased with everything that we do? No. But he's pleased with who we are because of Christ. Not because of our works, which are nothing, but because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. 1 John 2.28 And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We've been talking about the fear of God and the fear of man in first light. You can have the, the ult, utmost, the ultimate confidence in life. And it's not based upon your successes or your failures, your friends or your enemies Whatever it may be, it's not based on anything other than Christ. You can have confidence that when he appears on the final judgment day, you can stand unashamed before him, not having laid down anything that would be worthy of the gift of life, but simply saying, Christ is all and I am in him because he is in me. He has chosen me, chosen me as his own. You want confidence? come to Christ. Not, you won't find it in yourself. You won't all of a sudden wake up and go, hey, I'm, I'm a confident person. No, but you will be confident in who he is because he's perfect and you have all of Christ in you. These are just some small, uh, a small list, but they're much longer and much more numerous. Go home, type in your, uh, your favorite web browser, whatever it be, go to a Bible online, flip to your concordance, open a, whatever it would be, Go and study just the two words in him or in Christ and make yourself a list 
so that when you're discouraged or when you're downtrodden, you're finding difficulty with the circumstances of life, go look, go remind yourself of the blessings of the benefits that come with being in Christ. Now, how do we get here? How does this happen? How do we gain all these benefits? Well, we get it through the gospel, but let's look at the gospel in a little closer, in a little closer range here. Let's, let's start in verse 14 and 15, 13, 14, and 15, and look at Paul's, some pictures that he gives us. And I want to look at this, uh, this gospel presentation here in 11 through 15 in two ways. The first I want to look at, which we'll start with in 13 through 15, is what Christ has done for us outside of us. What Christ has done for us outside of us. And then we're going to look at what Christ has done for us inside of us. And notice clearly, it's never anything that we do, inside or outside. It's all Christ, what he does outside us and inside of us. First of all, what Christ has done for us outside of us. Number one, found in verse 13 and 14. Look with me. And you who were dead in your trespasses, there's the first picture of why we couldn't have done anything. You're dead. What does a dead man do? A dead man does nothing. He doesn't breathe. He doesn't get excited. He doesn't, do, doesn't move. He's dead. We were dead spiritually in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now let's look closely. We're dead. Christ, God, makes us alive. And how does he do this? Well, we are not dead physically, obviously. We're dead spiritually. And we don't even realize in our deadness that we are dead. We're unable to come to him because we're unable to respond to anything that would be true. And what we don't understand is that we're carrying around a document that by its legal decree demands our death. And not only are we carrying around a document, we're carrying around it with our signature scrawled across it. It would be something of this nature. I, Cody Carnett, am in debt by my sins, signed Cody Carnett. That'd be one thing if John Willing came to me and said, Cody, you're in debt to me. Prove it. Show me where. I don't know about this. I don't have any, I've not signed off on that. Oh, but no, before Christ, in our dentist, we have a, we have a declaration, a legal document that says... I am in debt and deserving of death, signed, Cody Carnett. We are, a, we are in right, in our, in, our, in, our, in our deadness, in our sin. We have every right by our own document to, fu- to have the fullness of God's wrath upon us. And on that final day, we would hand that to him and say, let it go. I deserve your full, unadulterated wrath upon me. And we don't even realize that, do we? The sinner does not know this. That you're signed a document stating, legally, I am bound to the fullest extent of the law upon me. 
But what happens? God made us alive together with him. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He did two things. He first put that document that says, I, Cody Carnett, am worthy of the fullest extent of God's wrath, and he nails it to the cross. But he doesn't just leave it there. He wipes it clean. In in Bible times, in Paul's time, paper, of what we would know paper, was very scarce. And if you had anything and you could write on it, the ink that you had did not contain any acid in it. So you could scrawl on it and it would stay there as long as you didn't mar it. But you could also take it and wipe it off. So you might write a letter or somebody writes a letter to you and you receive it. Hey, this is a piece of paper. I read the letter. I need this piece of paper to write my own letter. (laughs) Wipe it off, send it back to whomever you like. This is what Christ did for us. There was a record. There is a legal document in its legal demands demanding Christ's unadulterated wrath upon my life and he takes, he nails it to the cross and then he takes Christ's blood and wipes it clean and says, you're a new creature. He makes us new, all new. Christ has done this for us outside of us. Let's go to Romans 8. Romans 8. This is simply what is in Colossians 2. Articulated differently. Giving us a a different side of the picture. But showing the cancellation of debt of sin. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We could say for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins set their minds on things that are dead, things that are sinful. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And then it continues on in the passage. 
about being heirs with Christ and the future glory that we will obtain and the everlasting God, love that we have from God because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now let's go back to Colossians 2. Christ has canceled the debt of sin. We're no longer bound by that document because it has been fulfilled in it all its legal demands. It was fulfilled. Not only did it have legal demands, it was fulfilled in all its legal demands. That why, that's why blood had to be shed. Death had to, be occur, had to occur in order to pay off these legal demands. Christ did that for us. He didn't simply stop there, though. He did something else outside of us. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who are these rulers and authorities? Are these people? Now, this is the spiritual rulers and authorities. This is the enemy of our souls. This is Satan. Christ defeated him. He conquered sin and death. He defeated the power of the enemy. Go with me to Revelations 12, 11. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We see this in Ephesians 6. Why do we do so? I thought Christ has defeated him. He's unable to fight. Oh, he's defeated in his entirety. He has no power outside of Christ. He has no power whatsoever. And yet that old flesh that we still live within, although a new creature, battles that enemy. But with Christ, we have victory. Revelations 12, verse 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have, has been thrown down and who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. Christ has conquered him. We have conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And we see in 1 Corinthians that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we can bear. The enemy has no more power than that which God allows him at a moment to test us and try us and conform us to the image of Christ. But he's completely defeated. He will not be able to stand on that day, that final day, and say... Cody Carnett is mine. No, he cannot accuse me of that. Those who are in Christ cannot be accused. That power has been broken. What Christ has done for us outside of us is he has canceled the debt of sin, unable to do it in our own right. We didn't even realize we had a legal document written on us and that we had signed it with our own hand. And yet he has canceled that and he defeated the enemy of our souls. We could never in our own ability have defeated the enemy, and yet he has. What Christ has done for us inside of us, we see back in Colossians 2 pictures. Go look with me there. Colossians 2. There's two pictures that that Paul offers here of what Christ has done for us inside of us. And they're found in verses 11 and verses 12. Verse 12. 
In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The first thing that Christ does for us, uh, one of the first things shown here is in verse 12, is resurrection. Christ brings us to life. As Lazarus was dead, he was brought to life. He was resurrected from the dead. We, in the fall, man was alive. Sin came and spiritually death came. And he brings us to life. How does he do that? Well, you see this there in verse 12. We, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Literally, Christ died on that cross, was buried, and rose again three more days. And he in us, it is as if we were on that cross, in that grave, and were brought to life again. That's the picture that is seen here. Could, can a dead man raise himself from life? No. But Christ in us is as if we were resurrected. And that we're speaking internally here. Physically, obviously, you're born and you live a life that Christ has for you or God has for you and then, and then you perish. We're speaking internally, dead. It's as if we went into a physical grave. In actuality, we're already there. But with Christ and we're raised anew with Christ, having not just life spiritually, but life in Christ, all of Christ in us. Now, what else does he do for us? Well, this is another picture given here by circumcision in verse 11. Now, let, let's, let's get a, a context of why Paul says this. And let's go to Genesis 17. We see the old covenant over in Genesis 17 of circumcision. And then we're going to ask ourselves what that is how that is seen in the new covenant under Christ. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, Our Abram, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you, between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. 
And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now back to Colossians 2. What's being shown here in verse 11? Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The old covenant said that this is something that is a physical representation of you being in Christ. It's something that is physically done in order to set you apart as being his. Now, how do we apply that in the new covenant? Well, you see something here in verse 11. Made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. When Christ, who has done for us, one of the things he has done for us inside of, is he, he not only made us alive, he made us new creatures, he cut off the old. He did a heart transformation. He did heart surgery and he does that every single day. He gives us the ability by his word to continually cut off all that is old. And, and why? Because that shows through the power of Christ that we are his. We have been made new. We have been made alive. Now, there's an interesting comparison here between baptism and circumcision. And I, I don't think we can gloss over that because it goes... Um, It's a theological question and one that we need to address as it comes up in Scripture. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Well, the the question would would be simply this, theologically. Does this, why is there a comparison between baptism and circumcision? And does this comparison signal that we should baptize our children? Because the old covenant says you're to circumcise a male eight days in. So does that mean that we should baptize our infants. The theological term would be paedo-baptism. We believe in this church in believer's baptism. There are many strong believers in the faith, many brothers and sisters in Christ that would take up infant baptism. Is this a scripture that's saying we should baptize infants? And I would say no. And this is why I want to show you this. Look at this with me. In him... Verse 11, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Because there's the first point. One, we're talking about a physical analogy. The new covenant, we're talking about a spiritual analogy. There's, There's one point. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, and he here's the key. Here's the key. Through faith in the powerful working of God. Can an eight year old have faith? Not faith in Christ. He doesn't have the understanding yet. There was something done to him at eight years old, physically, but he's not, una- he's not able spiritually to have, he doesn't have the understanding to have faith in Christ. So there, there's, does that mean we should baptize in infants? No, because you baptize in faith. And the old covenant was by circumcision. The new covenant is not by baptism. The new covenant is by faith in Christ, by the work of Christ. So, the point being made here is very clearly, baptism is not what signals the new covenant. Baptism is an outworking of the new covenant. As circumcision was a sign of the new covenant, baptism, uh, of the old covenant, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. We come to Christ by his power within us through faith and then are baptized. 
in order to show the world we are in Christ. We have been made a new creature. Circumcision was a physical act. Baptism is not the new covenant, but rather a response to the new covenant of Christ, having cut off the old flesh, the deadness of our hearts, and given us new life. We see the powerful message of the gospel in these verses, 11 through 15, of what Christ does outside of us and what he does in us. Now, what would be practical application? How do you take this and put rubber to it? Shoe leather. Work it out. And I'm going to offer a suggestion. There, could, there are many, many practical applications here, but I'm, I'm going to offer one. And I, wanna, I want us to think about what it means to be passionate about the gospel. And we talk about that in this church. We need to be passionate about the gospel. We want to be a church that's passionate about the gospel. And that's a, that's a, that's a hot term. And you're, you're really passionate for life. You're passionate about the gospel. Young men, well, often I'll, there's been different times I've had the opportunity to say, you know, wh- why, why do you want to meet? Why do you want to study the word? Well, I want to I be on fire for God. I want to have a passion for the God. It's something that we, we coined and we talk about. But I would say this about the gospel, which is that a passion for the gospel is not what we should be looking for. Because oftentimes, I know in my life, and I would tend to say probably for most of us in the human race, is we jump from passion to passion. It's a flash in the pan, you know? Man, I'm really interested in getting in shape the next thing. I've really taken up a a passion for this or that. We all have it, right? We we all all go through these phases. We're really into this. We really have a passion about it. And then we move to the next thing. And we apply that same feeling, emotional pull and excitement of whatever that thing is that makes us excited to Christ. And that's the same thing we want. We want this feeling and, and passion that just exudes us, that makes us feel so excited about getting up in the morning and, and we apply it like-minded to whatever else we have a passion with. And I think, and from emotional standpoint, we're looking for all the wrong things when it comes to the gospel. In reality, probably most of us are not really that passionate about anything. Because if you move from passion to 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 passion, are you really passionate about anything? No, really, you're not. Because it's nothing lasts. I know I'm not. It's just a flash in the pan. It gets me emotionally excited. It might last for two weeks, three months, a year, and then it dies and I move to the next thing. Is that wrong to move from thing to thing to thing? No, it's not. What I'm saying is, if we want those type of feelings to be the same feelings we have in Scripture, we're looking for the wrong thing. Because those are emotional just flitterings. But rather, we need to look in Scripture, 11 through 15 of Colossians 2 is a great place to start, about what Christ has done for us, and then respond accordingly. And that may not feel very emotional. In fact, I would go as far as to saying, piggybacking on what Paul said last week, is that when we're looking to have Christ and passion, we're actually 
not looking for Christ at all. Because Christ, with anything else, we have all in Christ. So when we're looking to have, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like a good Christian because I don't have this feeling over here. We're looking for something outside of Christ to make us feel approved by God. When in actuality, our approval lies only in Christ. So what, what is the practical application that I'm getting at? What, what, what do we need to do? Well, I, I would suggest is we look at Scripture. We respond accordingly. And that's going to probably look like discipline. It's a naughty word, isn't it? But those who, who really get something done in life sometimes have feelings about what they're doing and sometimes they don't. But they're committed to it and therefore they do it because it's the right thing to do. Children, us as parents are not always excited about getting up in the morning and raising you. Can you believe it? Why? Because there are hard days. Now, there are some amazing days, and the good days probably outweigh the, the bad ones by far. But there are days when you just know, oh, is, this one's going to have a hard time. It's just is not really something I'm looking forward to. But we do it, don't we? Because it's the right thing to do. It's what God has called us to do. And we've disciplined ourselves to do it. And then you begin to see the fruit of it. Or you then begin to see God's grace in you and developing in you the hope of glory, even if the fruit isn't like you would want it to be. But we didn't do it because we always felt like it. We did it because it was the right thing to do. Last week, you had, if you followed any of the World Cup, you had a physical analogy on the pitch. Brazil is always known for their passion in football, soccer. And they were soundly defeated by a team that was always known by their discipline. The Germans never have a big passion on the field. The Brazilians do. The Germans wiped them out with them, 7-0. to zero. And it was well noted that the Germans lost, I mean, that the Brazilians lost because of their passion. There's a lot of Christians that I'm afraid, and I fear this for myself at times, that will arrive on the day of judgment riding on passion rather than having ridden on discipline and working out the gospel day to day to day, regardless of whether or not I felt as if I should seek God. And sometimes with passion, you win the day. The Brazilians have won many World Cups. Sometimes Christians, we can move masses through passion. But really what's going to win the day at the end of the day is not the passion It's the seeing the truth of the gospel and making practical application as it requires for the glory of God and out of love for him. Going, oh, this doesn't feel good. But wow, Christ, look what you have done for me. I will respond accordingly. That's really the battle, is it not? The battle oftentimes lies with doing it because it's not only commanded, because it's the best, because it's the right thing, because it's not always the easiest thing, Rather than, because, rather than doing it because we feel like doing it. Do you always feel like telling the truth? No, we do not always feel like telling the truth. Do you always feel like getting up in the morning and reading the Bible? Does that just sound so exciting to every one of us to do that tomorrow morning? I think if we all raised our hand, or 
Some of us raise our hand. We don't say no. That's not. I'd rather sleep in. But why do we do it? Because of what Christ has done for us. So by practical application, let's go to let's go back to eleven through fifteen and go, and be overwhelmed by the fact that outside of us and inside of us, Christ has done a work of which we would never have been able to do. And now we are in Him, and we have the we have the power to do what we ought to do when we don't feel like doing it. And I would also submit that those who do that, discipline themselves according to the gospel, will win the day. And the emotions do come. They do. Not always easy. But they will win the day. Maybe not today or tomorrow or the end of the day. But those that are in Christ, faith without works is dead. Those who work out their salvation through fear and trembling, realizing that there's nothing that they could do to have achieved this salvation, will on the final day win, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us, and we thank you for the picture we've seen here in Colossians 2, 11 through 15. That there's... This free gift, this salvation is not of any of our doing. It never has been, nor will it ever will be. And we simply pray for the grace to respond accordingly. Lord, I pray that you'd help me. Lord, I oftentimes want a passion for you more than I want to do the right things for you. I want the feeling more than the requirement. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, help me, to daily seek you, to daily walk with you, not because we will earn anything, not because our salvation will be completed if we do such and such and so and so, but rather because it's the proper response, it's the loving response to your unfathomable love for us in giving us life. And Father, we trust that, as is shown in Scripture, that when we apply the grace that you give us to daily seek you and walk with you because of the gospel, that there is a joy unspeakable full of glory. And there's a peace that passes all understanding that comes from walking with you. Help us to do so. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.